The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. So welcome, everybody, to today's podcast. I am really excited to be here with our guest today, FICA, who is a physician. And we've had amazing guests on the podcast that have been speaking about their experience during the pandemic. We haven't had as many physicians, and, and we are having some now. And um, your voice, and we've had a, a chance to meet, is so powerful. And I feel very lucky to add it to the podcast and for people to hear it and, and learn from it. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you, John, for having me and giving me the opportunity to really speak about my own personal mental health journey as an infectious disease specialist on the front lines of COVID. So, wow. So let's start there, right? So not only are you a doc, but here comes a pandemic which is an infectious disease thing, and you're an infectious disease doc. So what was it like? What were you doing? And what was the beginning of the pandemic like for you in your role? So January of 2020, we did kind of get an inkling about what was happening in China. So the first two weeks uh, into January, we started getting the calls, uh, you know, and we started taking the phone calls about people who had traveled to China. And at least for the first four to six weeks, we were just fielding those calls from all over the state about any patient who'd come back or traveled from China and was having flu-like symptoms. Uh, you know, things kind of escalated very quickly. Uh, and, and around March, we knew that uh, we were seeing a cluster of, uh, of cases, outbreaks were happening. And that's when we really had to shift gears. The urgency of what was happening in our country, especially in our state, just kind of hit all of us. And we kind of just went into survival mode. And we knew we had to really step in as the experts and the infectious disease specialists and really look through the events that were happening. What was challenging at that time was, you know, the beginning of the pandemic, we were limited in terms of the resources that were available to us. There were no testing uh, available that we could offer our patients and there were no treatment 
So we would get phone calls after phone calls about patients who had symptoms like COVID or had COVID-19. And what we would end up saying to the doctors and the, their patients was like, there's nothing more we can do at this point. We can't offer any tests. There are no treatments. Just have your patients and, or just go home and quarantine. And every phone call that we got was, is there anything more that you can do for us? Uh, can you, is there a way that we can do a test on this patient so we know what's happening? It's hard for people to understand that that was not in our control. And that's when we realized that the healthcare infrastructure was failing us. We felt completely helpless because people turned to us as the experts to give them the answers. And we weren't able to provide them at that moment. And it progressively got to a point that, you know, the cases went up exponentially. We were seeing all these people. They couldn't stay home because they were afraid and they were coming into the emergency rooms. The emergency rooms were getting overwhelmed and we were called and asked to go down and see them. And when we would see them, we would have nothing more to offer to them at the same time. If you were not that sick, the answer was the same. Go home, feel better. If you don't feel better, come back. But the ones who were really, really sick and unwell, uh, we had limited ICU beds. We had limited ventilators. We really had to pick and choose in terms of who would qualify, who needed to be triaged. And those are decisions that, as physicians, we had to make very often in, in 24 hours. It wasn't just one patient once a week. It was 10 or 12 times in a day when we were asked to make those calls. And that well, was so tough. this is so this is so that's a really powerful picture, right? Because you actually are the first infectious disease doc we've talked to, and so so far you've made me realize that you probably were ahead of the curve in noticing what was going on Correct. right around the world versus the rest of us. Then I'm getting this image: you, you're right in the middle of it as it right. comes. People are calling you. What do we do? You know, we don't have a test. How can we not have a test? And you're you know, you're getting called because you're the focal point. And it, it sounds like you, you know, you didn't have, not only did you not have the answers, but you're not used to not having tools, you know, in your armamentarium being in healthcare. So what was that like? How fast did it escalate? What was it like being that focal point in the beginning of this crisis? I, you know, every time I have stepped into a COVID-19 patient's room, I haven't been afraid. And I feel a lot of it, you know, all infectious disease have felt the same. We haven't felt afraid going into these rooms or taking care of these patients. What we have felt is the immense the responsibility of doing right by them and, and making sure that every decision that we make in those moments is the right thing to do. But we didn't have any information. What we had was possibilities or probabilities of what possibly worked as treatment options, what were the best approaches to take care of these patients. And, you know, it's a new, completely novel and new virus, uh, unlike any other virus that we had seen, even though it belongs to the family of the SARS virus, it was behaving entirely different. So there was no history to fall back on. Uh, it was people were getting sicker more quicker in a more quicker fashion. And they were declining and fading very quickly in front of our eyes. And that was extremely difficult to watch. Uh, I was overcome with emotions of helplessness and an intense responsibility and heaviness because I felt that uh, I couldn't give them the best of what I had trained for. I was limited in terms of the resources that were available to them and 
there was also not a lot of information on how best to take care of these patients. What was happening at that time was there was a big surge of scientific literature and we had that added responsibility of going through the scientific literature, making sure it was accurate. And there was what was, and everything was just rapidly evolving. What was true one day would be false the next day. So that was also mentally very taxing to keep up with all the information that was coming in and then disseminating it to other physicians and disseminating it to my patients in a way they understood it. And everything would change from moment to moment. So, and actually just to compare and contrast other people's experience, right? So being an infectious disease person, you actually weren't as worried about yeah. the, you know, exposure where that a lot of people were, but being an infectious disease person, you were being asked questions and there was no literature. You know, you didn't have the answers, you didn't have the tools and convey a sense of frustration about that. And then also convey this sense of just how awful it is to see people declining. People wanted answers. Were you in the position of having even, to, were you part of the decision-making process around who gets a, a room in the ICU and ventilators and that sort of thing? So we worked collaboratively with uh, the pulmonary ICU critical care doctors. We would, because we worked as a team, nobody knew more than the other person. We all wanted to kind of collaborate and work together and come to the right decision. And with time, we were able to kind of really pivot and recognize patterns that would suggest that clinically certain patients would not do well and in clinically how patients would be better off getting to the ICU early. So age was the big factor. And then mm -hmm. comorbidities, if you had a higher comorbidity and you were older age, the chance of survival, if you did end up on a ventilator was much lower in the absence of any kind of mm -hmm. treatment options that were available. Mm -hmm. So keeping these resources in mind, it was really important that we worked in healthcare as a team and what was really unique was how we connected all the healthcare professionals across the United States, made a network, and how we communicated very openly and talked about any information that had good scientific grounds was shared you know, across the board, like Mass General shared their protocols with us. Other big centers across the Midwest were doing the same so everybody could get as much benefit as quickly as possible so they could help their patients. So that was really, really neat. And that's, I mean, that sounds amazing to be part of a team, you know, and all the work that you had to do, by the way, in addition to taking care of patients to try to coordinate Correct. with other places that are doing the work and, and find solutions. But I'm just wondering, I mean, I, I'm a psychiatrist, so I wasn't involved. I wasn't on any team that it had, I, I can't imagine, I bet it was a new thing to have to sort of uh, triage. And we take our healthcare system for granted. We think we have as much as we need of equipment and hospital beds. And what was it like to be in the position, you know, on, on teams working on having to almost ration care? I mean, what was that like? You know, I've never really had to make that decision before. You know, my limitation of rationing is limited to antibiotics and that's by choice. I do it because it's important to do that because of antibiotic resistance that we're seeing and we don't really have a lot in our armamentarium at this point. But rationing critical life-saving measures like ventilators and ICU beds is just soul crushing. It's, it's just hard to, mm -hmm. and then having no family members at the bedside, the patients are just alone to calling the family members or FaceTiming them when you're physically 
your, you know, your eyes are covered, your hair, your face, you're in this full PPE, you can't really have those meaningful interactions. So not only is the family member not there physically, but you are completely look in a way that disconnects you. There's no human aspect to what you mm. appear like. You're giving them such life-changing information. You know, I think for me, that was kind of critical too. It, I, I usually like the connection, even in those tough, difficult moments with my patients and my families, because it gives both of us, both of us at either end, a, like a sense of closure. And with with that being gone, I think uh, that was one of the negative consequences of, I could say, the, the loss of emotional connection yeah. that I felt that was, that really impacted me. In medicine, connection is a very important piece of how I present myself and mm -hmm. how I practice medicine. So, I mean, just this list of things, right? Uh, you're aware as an ID person, but then, you know, we just don't know what's going on, not having the tools, not having the knowledge, having to do the work, being involved in right at the center of things. People are asking you for answers. You don't have them all. Being involved even in having to deal with a limited supply of whatever, PPE, you know, ventilators. And then this last thing about having to have some of the most intense human-to-human -human interactions, but in a kind of alien kind of world and, and, and outfit. And, and you were, you know, when we talked, you had mentioned that you were also being called as a spokesperson to be in the media about this mm -hmm. at, at the time. And so it was more than, you know, just doing the clinical work and being at the bedside. When did you, you know, that's a lot. And soul crushing is a really powerful, yeah. that's a yeah. really yeah. power. It really gives a sense of what it felt like. So did that start to build up? When did you, you know, was there a point at which you realized, hmm, you know, something's going on here? Yeah, I, you know, I kind of think back in, you know, I think I went through my own stages. I started at the early onset of pandemic. It's just, yes, I need to get in there. I need to step in and step up, followed by just physical and mental fatigue, then just feeling of helplessness with the lack of resources, loss connection and being disconnected. And then eventually a little bit of anger. Like, you know, I want to spend time with my family. Like, mm -hmm. why do I, you know, I have, I, I wished and looked back at all my friends who were at home with their kids when we had the stay-at-home orders, and I wished I could. That was my moment to really get to know my kids a little bit more. I always think about how I spent very little time with them because of work, and I felt a little bit upset and angry about that. And then, you know, I'm six months into it, I was just physically and emotionally exhausted, and I think I hit a wall where. I would sit in my parking lot at work a little bit longer than that was necessary. Mm -hmm. It took me a little bit longer to say bye to my family, uh, to get up out of bed. I had a lot more anxiety doing the media thing, which was new for me. What was new, media or the anxiety? The media was new, but I was getting I was getting used to it. I was learning how to adjust it, but the anxiety. It was really seven months into what I was, you know, doing the media. I was getting great at it, and then I just couldn't. Could it do? I was just self doubt came in. I would yeah. overanalyze and overthink everything. Can I pause on that for a minute? Because this yeah. is really interesting, right? So, because you know, obviously, I'm talking with you, and you know, you're an incredible spokesperson. And so, th this moment of you know, even just that specific thing, you're on the media, you're doing it, you're, you're good at it, you're called to do more of it, and then literally, you started having whether you call it anxiety, something 
something happened? It changed? Yeah. yeah you I, noticed that? I noticed that because it was not, it was just not normal for me. Uh, I, wow. I didn't notice when I, I knew that I was spending a little bit more time getting into work and I thought maybe it was just, I was just tired. My day had been long. I had been staying up late, reading up on what was new in COVID-19 treatments. But when I hit that moment where I just couldn't speak or I doubted how I was taking care of my patients, stuff that I even knew, I knew that that was not who I was, that I know that I needed to connect with my therapist who I have had a longstanding relationship with and she understands who I am and and she told me that it was just trauma and, and stress that I was experiencing from everything that I had seen and been through. I also was able to actually connect with a life coach. I did one-on-one with her. She connected me through a person who is a female physician who works specifically with women in medicine who've experienced burnout or want to get to the next step in their career. So I worked with her. Uh, Basically, she was not only my sounding board, but really my thinking partner. And she helped me navigate through this period of my life by helping me identify my thoughts and certain patterns that I have already connected to earlier parts of my childhood, which in my therapy, I had worked on it. But I think having a life coach and doing certain exercises on a daily basis and having homework is what really helped me through. Uh, She also helped me recognize that I had to go through a grieving process, move through the grief, and that I shouldn't have to feel guilt or inviting joy and play into my life when everything else around me, which was 80% of my life, was just a lot of sadness. So first of all, as you, when you talk about the work of therapy, it is so helpful for me to hear, right? And for others to hear. And you've already said a lot, but I want to go, I want to get more into that. And I know I'm kind of stuck on it. I want to ask you about that moment again. When I talk with you, use this phrase, I thought it was fine until I realized I wasn't. You yeah, know? yeah. And the, the realization, right? Because so many people go right through that moment and don't realize it. And I want to go back to this moment where you're doing the media. It could be anything. Somebody's doing something. And they're usually good at it, comfortable. And then something starts happening, losing your confidence, whatever. And and doubt, you said doubt. And you can imagine doubt being like a hole that mm-hmm. somebody goes down, right? And doesn't, it's not intuitive that going into a doubt hole, your next move is going to be reaching out to a therapist. Do you know what I mean? Do you remember how you turned that around? Like, was there part of you that remembered some other time when you had doubt and that was a signal? Like, what? how did you know? Because I think so many people get lost in that whole. Do you know what I mean? I've had that episode before where I have been down that process where you just Mm -hmm. keep going down, doubting yourself. You have shame triggers that just trigger you so much that you can't think, you can't have meaningful interactions. And the first time it took me 10 years to really recognize that and get therapy, Mm -hmm. which is when I started therapy. And then doing therapy consistently over time and being more conscious and aware of my thoughts and my patterns uh, helps me. It's just like a bell that goes off. You recognize that you recognize the bell. So here's my question to you then, because not everyone's done that. 
pre-work, yeah. right? Sure. So what would your advice be? If, let's say we had a third person joining us now. It's a nurse. She's on the front lines. And we're actually talking to her in the back room and she's going down that hole and, and she doesn't know it, right? Yeah. So she's, she's, she's feeling not less confident, the doubt she's going down. Like what, what would come to mind to you to say to, to somebody like that? So I've noticed that a lot around me. I've noticed that since I've been doing this work on myself, that even people like my medical assistants, my nurses who I work with, I can intuitively pick up on those signals from them. What do you say? I actually just pull them on the side and I say, I noticed that you have a lot going on uh, and that it's important to talk about these feelings and that I am here for you. It's a safe place and that I will always be available you can come into my office, but these are important emotions that we need to talk about and that you're not alone. I think most of us, when the first time it happened to me, I had a lot of shame around those mm-hmm. emotions of sadness, uh, stress, and anxiety that I didn't share it with anybody for almost a decade, where it was really crippling my everyday level of function and I knew it was impacting who I was as a mother, who I was as a physician, who I was as a partner. It was at the lowest point in my life that I knew that I had to really make some critical changes and work on myself because I just didn't like who I was becoming because of it. So you had to do it that first time, but now you you have the cue, you, you have the memory of the cue like that bell. Oh, there's that anxiety thing kicking in from out of nowhere. It sounds like what you would say to people that have not done the work yet may not have that cue already. It sounds like what you're doing is you're trying to mitigate the shame for them. You know, right. like I want to tell you from my experience, shame is not worth it. Let's get you connected. I'm here for you. And that's really uh, super helpful. And also when people just listen to you talk, secondarily, they can just process, oh, that might be a cue. I mean, they may not have had it themselves, but now they know you have or other people have. I think people, and as human beings, we want to be visible, right? I think a lot of people feel invisible as they go through life. They check in and check out. And just having somebody pause and say, I see you. I know that you're hurting and that this is impacting you and that you are in a safe place that I'm here to listen. And we, I may not have all the answers, but we can figure things out together. I think the culture of medicine, there is so much shame associated with mental illness or mental health dysfunction or stress that people don't share it. Most of us in, including myself, which I did, where overwork is a badge of honor. That's what we are expected to do they don't equate rest and help with self-love. And we need to change the conversations around that. I think you're right. And what you're doing and speaking to your story here and, and elsewhere, people listening to you, I think is the antidote to that. And let's go to the therapy, if we may. And I want to go to this thing I was so struck by, and, and it sounds like a riddle initially, which was something, if I get this right, when you were doing the work in your therapy on on this, that in order to deal, to get through this moment of, you said, soul-crushing stuff, yeah. that you actually had to be more vulnerable, something like that? Uh, you know, I, I learned through work with therapy and my coach that you have to remain vulnerable and open to all the emotions of life, which includes sadness, grief, loss, and happiness to invite happiness and joy you have to stay open so you have to experience all those moments and it's through those moments you have to have 
the presence, uh, the skills to be able to navigate through them, that without those vulnerable moments, I think you, you rid yourself of joy, which is so immensely necessary in today's world. And I felt that a lot of what I was doing the first six months, there was so much pain that I was seeing so frequently that I had closed myself off to a lot of things that could have enjoyed when mm -hmm. I came home with my kids. And I want to read to you something that my 12-year-old, she wrote an essay. It was basically the impact of COVID-19 through a child's eyes. She, was, she had just turned 12 and she had written. And I, with the first time I read it, I was moved to tears. And I'm just going to read a little part of it. She says, one day I'm in school, blank. The next day I'm not. One day I'm spending time with my mother, blank. The next day I'm not. The early morning hours are no glory to my mother's eyes. The blue scrubs cover her body. The lab coat sits atop. A mask hides her mouth. Protective glasses cover her eyes. A face shoe clasped around her face. My eyes don't recognize her. A new person, a new mom. Away she goes to fight for lives she's never been a part of until now. The badge on her coat unlocks the door to a battle zone. She has no choice but to fight, all while people don't follow the rules. She still continues to fight, not one second where she can let her watch down. Eyes up, back straight, one foot, then the other. She can't unsee what she saw while battling this invisible opponent. It sticks with her day after day, night after night. It brings a seriousness to her face, not the smile I used to recognize. Ours at work only to come home to continue. No time to endure with her, the one I don't know what I would do without. Stacks of reports and papers cover her face that I know looks tired and stressed. The smile and joy she gives, hidden like the sun on a cloudy day. Mom, where are you? Mom, I can't find you. Mom, come back. Mom, she doesn't reply. And you said she's 12? She's 12 when she read it. Yeah, I was... I was moved to tears the first time I read it. Every did time you, I get did emotional. You read, did she do that when you were in the I thought I was fine phase or after yes, you realized? I thought I was fine phase, which she, from a 12-year-old, I wasn't. She knew that I wasn't fine. And this did reading a, that help you or realize? That's when I was like, wow, this is what I've, I've, that was in my, I need to get in, get to work, figure this out, help, do the best I can to help these people find a solution to this. Wow. What are the therapy in? I was. There's so many powerful things, but cool things about that. I'm going to try to catalog the ones I, one of them is how much we rely on each, on other people, even if they're your 12 year old kid yeah, to be able to get through adversity and realize what's going on. Another is that what she just did, the words you brought into the podcast that she gave us, that that's a different viewpoint, right? People are able to speak one-on-one -on -one here about their point of view. We just got another point of view, literally like a movie camera, like right. a 12-year-old, but a very sophisticated 12-year-old movie camera on what it felt like for her. And it's so, so powerful because most people, I think, I would think most people would be thinking, look, this stuff is really getting to me. It's so I'm being barraged by soul-crushing stuff, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's other traumatic things, whether it's other stresses. I want to go into therapy so I can build a wall, so I can mm -hmm. protect myself, right? 
But it's that's not what you're saying, that it wasn't about building a wall, if I get that right. It was more about being more present. Is that right? Correct. It's being more present in the moment so you can be more open to what that moment has to offer, whether it's sadness or joy. And for me, even in the sad moments when I'm present, what I do when I walk into a patient's room is force myself to sit down and push my feet onto the ground. It's kind of a reminder for my body and my brain to be present in that moment with my patient. And that is like a reset button because sometimes the day is crazy. Your beeper and your phone is going off. But those simple acts of just sitting down, pressing my feet into the ground is a signal to my brain that I am here and then I can be available and open to everything that moment has to offer. That's what I was going to ask. So even in moments that are difficult, that you want to be more present. Correct. And, and that, how does that not make things worse? Over time, I've learned that every moment has a unique, special gift to offer. It may not be the gift that you're looking for, mm-hmm. but if you remain open to whatever that moment is offering, it will lead you to something special in its own unique way. I remain open to that, whether it's a connection that I make over a bad news that you're giving to your patient, but then you understand that you are you are put in that moment to share that little gift with your patient's family and they respond to you with so much love that in the end, I still get so much love back in return. And I think as a physician and as healers, we have a very, very unique place in this pandemic. And I think we need to find support in each other, but also understand that it's those moments that we we need to remain open to. I mean, I hear that as an extraordinarily empowering realization, right? Can you imagine the difference between approaching the world where the difference between any moment that comes at me is going to have meaning and has something in it that I can, you know, be open to and make use of? versus I'm dodging the bad moments, right? Like I'm, oh, I don't want another bad moment to come my way. And I don't get the sense that you're saying it in a, everything's just happy all the time. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they're extraordinarily sad and difficult moments, but that you you find something, you're able to find something in each one. It reminds me of you talked about your inner voice and and how that, say a little bit about that, how that brought you from maybe more fear-based to more strength-based life. So I've really, over time, based on the work that I have done, cultivated my inner voice, which I recognize as a voice that speaks to me and guides me. The moments that I'm disconnected from that inner voice are the moments when I feel mentally and physically unavailable to be present. And it's not perfect at all times. It requires me to do a lot of self-work. It requires that I'm always attentive to my own needs. The moments when I neglect my own needs and rest and play is when I feel the most disconnected from that voice. So I need to understand that it has to be a balance. And the the more I connect to the voice, the more the voice guides me to step into places that require courage and take me to opportunities where I can use my gifts in ways that serve others. And I'm able to do things that I never thought I was capable of. So I feel I'm able to recognize my own strengths by honoring that voice in every moment. 
I mean, I wonder if that is one of the things that allows you to speak with us today, right? As you said, there's a stigma in in medicine and healthcare, and it goes beyond that, but let's just take docs, for example, about speaking of their own experience of dealing with stress and mental well-being. And do you think that, maybe I'll just put the question to you, what makes the difference between being able to come forward and speak about your personal experience of emotional distress as a doc versus not? You know, I recognize that my position and my purpose in life is to create awareness for what is close to my heart. And for me, I have started on a journey in my own personal and professional lives that I make choices based on what honors my inner voice. And honoring that voice leads me to do my best work. And I know that I am a great mother, a great partner, a great physician when I'm living life on purpose. Uh, And I have done enough work and I continue to do enough work and I want to move in that direction regardless of whatever challenges there are so I can be presented with those opportunities that takes me to growth. So I'm really of the growth mindset. So it doesn't mean that it comes easy. It just means that I do have moments where I feel shame. I feel discouraged by those challenges. I've had events, failures in my own personal life, but it's just understanding that those moments will pass and that the the brighter, better moments will open up. It's just that life has its ups and downs and that you have to ride it. But there are many moments that I have experienced by staying open to every one of them that I've, had, I've experienced a lot of joy, a lot of love. I've made some new connections that I never thought I were possible for me. I mean, and and by the way, this is not just theoretical and about benefits of therapy and theoretically or of taking a chance on opening up and being present and vulnerable and being able to speak about your experience. We had Corey Feist on the podcast, whose sister-in-law, Dr. Lorna Breen, died by suicide. Um, oh, yeah. Beginning of the the pandemic. And yeah. He, yeah. And, you know, it was pretty clear that one of the contributing, fa- one of the contributing factors is likely her concerns, worries, fear uh, about re- even reaching out for, for mental well-being, health, or help. It would be a stigma in doing that. People would see her as uh, not being able to manage. So the way you say it, it comes so naturally, and it's really important. I mean, do you think we can change that? And we're talking right now about physicians specifically. It goes beyond mm-hmm. that. But let's just say with physicians in the culture, what, what do you think? Do you think we can change that culture? You know, I think we need to change that culture, but the culture in medicine is very archaic. The stigma runs very deep. It would have to be a lot of changes coming from where there are legislatures that do not not require disclosure of whether physicians have sought help or have received help because that's one of the medical licensing requirements that requires that disclosure. The culture of medicine is steeped in in years and years of how physicians are expected to be perfect. You know, like perfectionism in medicine is was one of the things that, you know, we want everybody to be great at what they're doing, but we're also human. You know, we make mistakes and to not be punitive in our actions when we do reach a point where we, we have so much distress that's causing so much suffering that we cannot even reach out for help because the physician suicide 
rates are astronomical. One physician every day and female physicians, the suicide rates are two times, two and a half times higher than men compared to the general population. So most people are not aware that these are really the reality of what we're facing. And that is so important to share our stories so that other people feel empowered and safe to do the same. I think you're completely right. I think it is the two things. It is on the one hand, things need to change. We need to look at regulations and licensure, you know, state medical board stuff. And then it's dialogue like we're having right now. And, you know, you said so many things that I think are going to have a real impact. And two moments I want to just highlight. One was so many people do have a sense, I'm not doing so well, something's going on. And may even have a sense like, wow, this is a really new thing. They just started anxiety. My confidence is low. I've got all this doubt. But they, they end up continuing to go down. And the way you described how you, you know, recognize that and turn around. And one of the antidotes to that is getting rid of shame, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, how, and reaching out to each other and recognizing that that, thing, like mm-hmm. you said, it's a signal. So that is really going to help people. And then this other thing, which I think is extraordinary about work in therapy is not about building walls. It's it's actually about taking them down. And, oh, and yeah. do, you're doing that. You, you've become empowered to take every moment as they come. And it's not all just about being happy. But when a really difficult moment comes, you, you're able to ground yourself and take what is really you know important from it and integrate it. So, yeah, it's been incredible talking with you. Before we finish up, any any final thoughts, FICA? Yeah, I just want us to continue doing this work. You know, I love, I've heard most of the podcasts and they're really just remarkable listening to everybody's stories. I think it's important to keep having these conversations, bringing in more physicians. So the stigma around mental health in healthcare workers is just removed. We can continue to do this work where we can heal the healers. It just sounds like a cliche, but you know, the pre-pandemic numbers were not great for physician burnout and physician suicide. Those are not what we should aspire to go back to. We need to aspire to doing better and, and reaching better overall health for all of us. And are you, I think you would do some social media stuff and mm-hmm. is that one of your, I mean, you have plenty to do already, but I mean, are, do you feel being, that you're, you're being pulled to engage in this in a, in a larger way, getting the word out about the culture change? So I use social media really just to do that, to put a face to a name and to let other people know who I interact with or see that, you know, we're all real people. I'm not doing social media to just put out cliches. I'm doing it so that when people see me at work or when people see me in my community, they recognize that we have something meaningful to say. So sometimes at work, people will stop me. They're like, you know, we really like what you talk about. It's real. It's not all positive and happy. Uh, it's about having important conversations in a way that people can connect with. I also do it for my patients to get them information that they may not have access to. Otherwise, they message me. Just really to let them know that we are approachable. Uh, that we ha- we're real just like them, that we have our share of struggles to keep their expectations of us as they would of anybody else. But it's also for my coworkers to get the conversation started around mental health, uh, about having any fears that they may have be experiencing because of the pandemic, whether it's vaccination for themselves or vaccinations for the young adults. They're going to start soon. 
that I am here and available to help them through and navigate them through such challenging times. Well, thank you so much. I mean, you're busy and for, you know, <laughs> for spending the time with us. Thank you for your words. You know, your voice is, first of all, very powerful. Second of all, it has a real range. So, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And even with that range, though, you know, I would say my experience of your voice is that the note that's throughout it is hope. You know, we don't yeah. think we use the word, but that's the note that's throughout it. So, Fika, thank you so much for being a strong voice and joining us today. And we wish you the best of luck. Thank you for having me. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic, with Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editors, Sinead Doyle and Vlad Radu. Film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512 